Hello and welcome to the MotoGP Extra Podcast. Joining me today, as always, is Reese from Biker Gaming. Now, for round seven, we are off to France for Le Mans, and we have to jump to actually Thursday and a bit before Thursday for some of the pre-weekend action. Reese, take us through what happened before we even got to the round seven of the MotoGP Championship. Well, the first biggest bombshell, which was actually quite a while ago, it was literally like the day after we put up the last podcast, but it wasn't, it's a massive topic, but it probably wasn't quite enough to make an emergency one for us, so we knew we'd talk about it on this one. And that's Suzuki. It wasn't officially announced at the time, but it had been told to the team that they were leaving at the end of the season, which is absolutely ridiculous because they won the title two years ago. It's, it's, it's crazy. I, can't, I actually can't believe that they are leaving. They're fighting. They were leading the team's championship when this was actually sort of all announced. So why they're leaving makes no sense. It, just, it seems to be maybe something to do with money or something like that. I'm really, really not sure. It's just absolutely crazy. What, what do you think about Suzuki leaving? Disaster, really, because Suzuki, obviously, they've done it before. They have history for it. They did it in 2011, yeah, but they're, they're at, like, this year, Sylvain Gantoli has said multiple times that the current GP bike is the best bike they've ever made. They passed the Ducati in Qatar on the straight. That alone is just crazy. They signed in 2021, I want to say, a five-year contract extension with Dorna. Yeah, it was last year, uh, I think, they signed it. And... Now this, and the reason why is they're going to electric cars, they're actually pulling out of all racing, it's not just MotoGP. At first it was just the GP team that found out, but then as the news broke, they've pulled out of Enduro and everything else, so pretty much Suzuki as a racing company is gone, it is no more, it is now always focused on just electric cars, which is pretty pretty average really because there's such a historic racing team and especially world superbikes maybe not gp as much but over the last couple of years they have been they've been right at the front since they came back in 14 i think it was and uh, they've been pretty rapid since but it's a big loss and it may leaves a, bas- a massive hole another japanese manufacturer out so where do you think it'll go from here, Reese? How do you think that grid spot will be taken in 2023? Well, apparently, from what it sounds like, it can't be another independent team due to the agreement between um, like the team's association and, and Dorna. So that that just the way they split the prize money. So, well, not the prize money, but the, uh, the, the sort of the TV money where they split it just so that those teams don't lose out by having to share with another team. That's basically, there's a maximum of like six, which there currently is. So it seems like the only way we're going to get an, a new team in to replace those grid slots is actually a new manufacturer, which could go a couple of different ways. I mean, you could obviously get a brand new manufacturer coming in. Seems very unlikely, though, because it never seems like any other manufacturers ever show much interest. If you're thinking about the ones that are most likely, you know, you've got the likes of BMW, Kawasaki, with like, you know, in terms of the actually having the budget. But neither of them really seem like they'd be very interested in joining MotoGP. And then there is also the other way of doing it where KTM with their 20 million companies underneath them, such as Gas Gas, CFMO, Husqvarna, they could sort of come in, just basically grab their bike they've currently got, lick a new paint on it and just say, oh, it's a Husqvarna. But then that could get quite messy. I don't know whether that would count as a new manufacturer, potentially. Obviously, in Moto3, they let them get away with that. But in terms of having the concessions and things like that could get really, really messy. So, yeah, it does seem like we're probably just going to lose a team for next year. It doesn't seem like there's going to be 
any way to resolve it. Of course, there are independent teams interested, but like we said, the, well, like I said, you can't, the, just, there's just no way to have an extra team just with the agreements that are in place. Yeah, so a lot of people were looking at maybe an R&F Aprilia uh, team. So Aprilia would get an extra two bikes, and R&F would leave Yamaha, go to Aprilia. But then who takes over the extra Yamahas? And then again, it's just not feasible with the agreements currently. Now, whether down the line, Dorna do a little magic with the contracts and give everyone an extra couple of million and say, look, it's just this year, we'll be back on it for 2024 and everything. They, going back to the manufacturer way, a manufacturer won't take it. Usually, if a manufacturer is planning to commit to MotoGP, it's like a three-year project. For example, with KTM, they were they had a bike built a good 18 months before their first race, and they do a lot of testing to get to speed. It's not just we build a bike, we show up in Sepang, we race in Qatar. It's years, going back to Suzuki, when they first came back, they were blowing up engines left, right, and center. They had big trouble getting engines to last and over time they fix everything like that and then they get up to speed with it but the likes of a bmw they would want to be already thinking about it as far back as 2019 have it in place in 2020 to maybe be on the grid for 23 so there's i can 100 percent be sure there's not going to be a brand new manufacturer on the grid unless it's a husqvarna or one of the ktm companies their little under undercover companies you could say with their I, again i don't see it happening because of the concessions because you have a factory team with a factory bike in an off-brand team with concessions. You just, That's just bending of the rules. Um, so that really won't happen. But I'd like to see Dorna maybe just try and give everyone a couple of million and be like, look, we're going to have one, in, one more independent team. We'll readjust the contracts on extra so everyone kind of gets the same and it doesn't really affect you. But just so we can have extra two bikes on the grid and keep the current amount of riders, I think they could do that if they wanted to. Surely they have enough money but that's pretty much it on the manufacturers. We have another topic that came out Thursday morning. I think the story broke from Matt Oxley. Uh, basically, every rider this year at some point has been under pressure in the tyres and everyone has been cheating and everyone is okay with it. Reese, what is your opinion on the uh, tyre pressure saga? Well, first of all, I love the way you sort of sum it up. Just everybody's cheating and nobody cares. <laughs> but... <laughs> Yeah, it, it seems like it's been going on for a long time, so it just seems to be something that apparently has been heard, it's like a thing that goes around the paddock, like people kind of know about it, but this was the first time someone actually leaked the data, and it seems like the rule is where you have to, be, there's like a minimum tyre pressure and you have to be above that for more, for half the race at least, like probably just slightly over half the race, if you do that, it's legal. There's that sort of same rule in all three categories. We've seen in Moto2 in the past, it's been penalised, probably most famously Quattararo back in 2018, won the uh, Japanese Grand Prix and then got disqualified due to a tyre pressure sort of infringement. It was His pressure was too low. But in MotoGP, it seems like there's some sort of agreement between the teams and Michelin where they just kind of just, just ignore it. And I think this probably does lead into a bit more of a problem. Apparently, it's partially down to the fact that they don't have standardized equipment for testing the pressures. So, fair enough, I fully get that. If they don't all have the same system, you can't say, you know, you can't sit there and say, oh, you've got a penalty because you could easily argue it's the system differences. So, a little bit weird there's not a standardized system. But also, the Michelin tires just obviously, they're, they're too sensitive, it seems like. The front tires are not good enough at this point in time, it seems like. So, they have to actually run the pressures lower because the the pressures of the michelin tire increase too much when following another bike this tire is quite old now 
They brought in a new rear back in 2020, and they promised sort of, you know, if COVID hadn't have happened, the idea was to bring a new front tyre to match that extra grip in 21. Obviously, that never happened. It's still not happened. It still seems like it could be another year or two till it does happen. So, yeah, tyres, they are definitely a tricky subject. The team's trying to get around it. Seems like nothing's going to be done for now, but maybe next year there's going to be some more regulations brought in. And just finally on the tyre pressures, a lot of people asking why, if they're just, if why can't you just run them lower? Why can't you move the running window down a bit lower? The lower the tyre pressure, the higher chance of tyre failure. So they have to have minimum tyre pressures for safety. But at the moment, Michelin's tyres are very minimum where they'll work and where they'll be in the right pressure with being safety. So again, go back to what reset. Michelin need to overhaul the front tyre big time because they have such a small narrow window where they work. Every week we hear someone giving out, I had a bad tyre in the race, the front tyre didn't work, it was spongy, it was this, it was that. So just want to point that out, a lot of people are confused, why could you not run it lower? A lower tyre would just basically cause extra stress and it massively increases the chance of tyre failure, which is the last thing we want to see. Not race 200, we're not going to talk about you. <laughs> anyway, we're going to move on to uh, the Moto3 race in, or the Moto3 category for Le Mans. Reese. Friday, Saturday, Honda were back. They looked like they were quick. Again, on the race, they were thereabouts. What you, mean, what you reckon has given the Hondas a little bit of pace in Le Mans? I'm not really sure, to be honest, because I'd say it's down to track layout, but you'd also think that Jerez is sort of a track that would have suited the Honda, sort of rolling through the corners. But I think it genuinely is sort of down to the fact that the KTM just jets out of the corners a lot better. Whereas the Honda sort of flows through the corners a lot better. But I think on a Moto3, the way you ride some of the tracks are quite different to how you'd see it in a MotoGP. So you might see Jerez as a very flowing Yamahari circuit on a GP bike. Whereas Moto3, they're so slow, it's a f those sections are just full pinned. So, it's, so they're, they're effectively straight. So any section that effectively is, is pinned is effectively a straight. So I think that might have been where Honda were losing. They just don't seem to quite have that same punch on the straight, except the Leopard riders, but even they seemed a little bit slower in Jerez. But they seem to be back here in Le Mans. I can't really see why. Probably just track layout. I mean, Fodger particularly. I mean, all the Hondas looked back, but Fodger all weekend just looked a step above everybody. He was flowing through the corners. He was riding elegant, beautiful lines, but it didn't obviously didn't work out for him in the race we'll get onto that uh, in a little bit but yeah it just seemed like the honda was a lot more competitive compared to the ktm but that was more over one lap the ktm still seems like the better race bike if you ask me because it seems to be able to brake later which obviously is great for making a pass it could park it in the corner sort of jet out of the corner and not sort of leave the honda behind and it's got a good top end as well so it doesn't just get immediately blasted past unless you dennis fodger in which case of course you can't blast past it so yeah the honda seeming a bit more strong but I think it might have been more of a track configuration thing rather than that they found something. Yeah, and I agree there that Honda, I think they do lack a small bit of power compared with, they lack out of the corner, as you yeah, saw the in the race. Yeah, top end is not too bad, but yeah. Their top, when they get going, they're way up there, but overall, I think Honda just, Honda as a whole are a bit all over the place. They're not in an ideal spot in Moto3 or in GP. They're a bit kind of lost which is unusual. Usually they have one of them nailed on. Usually they're either brilliant in one of the classes, but to have them both kind of at sea is a bit a bit of an interesting one. But we're going to move on now to the race. Just on this sighting lap and the warm-up lap, we had a few spots of rain and everyone feared Portimao 2.0, and it's exactly what we had. 
Reese, what did you make of the opening three laps of Le Mans, or two laps before it was red flagged? FIM again, we have to bring him up. We only lasted 12 minutes into this podcast before <laughs> we managed to bring him up. Uh, take it away, Reese. What was your thoughts on all that shenanigans? Well, yeah, on to our favourite part of the podcast every time, talking about the FIM stewards. I mean, I, like I was saying to you before this podcast started, it happened once, and you could argue put him out. I think I did sort of jump to their defence a little bit on that podcast and say, you know what, to be fair, it was fine every other lap. When they got around that lap, it was too wet and they obviously crashed. So it was a little bit hard to call. Like, obviously, it just happened quite quickly. This time, you could see the rain falling before. People crashed on the first lap, which means that it already got wet enough before the race even started for it to, you know, go ahead. And this same incident happened about four weeks ago. So how has it happened again? The same thing. Of course, fortunately, it didn't seem, it wasn't as bad. And I don't think anybody's injured. Unlike the previous crash in Moto2, obviously we had Canit. I think Canit was the only rider that picked up an injury injury from that. But uh, I think Sam Lowe's got a bit uh, bruised and stuff. Sam Lowe's as well. leg as well was a bit yeah. banged up. But Canit, the only one that had to have surgery or anything like that. Yeah. It's still though, zero people should have done because it should never have happened. So fortunately, this time it does seem like it was less. I think all the the restart procedure was handled much better. But that was that wasn't down to them doing a better job of it. It was just because it happened so early in the race. The rules just say if less than three laps completed, you go back to the start, starting grid. Uh, initially, it did look like a normal race. Obviously, there were some spots of rain and I was a bit uneasy. Like you said, everyone was fair in Portimao 2.0. Then they got to the last sector. Oh, there's three bikes off there. Oh, there's a bike there. There's a bike there. There's a bike there. And then they, they still took too long to red flag it. They probably could have red flagged it like a... Well, it should never have started in the first place. But even if, you know, you say, okay, they'd started the race, whatever. They should have red flagged it still before they did. I mean, they were hearing around halfway around the first lap that there was so much rain in the pit lane. Surely the stewards hear that before the TV people hear that. So, you know, if the TV people are saying half around the first lap that there's rain in the pit lane, then surely the stewards know. So I, I don't even know. It's an absolute joke, as always. FIM stewards just, I mean, they're just so good at their jobs, aren't they? <laughs> yeah, and of course we did have the red flag, as we said. We had a few minutes hangover time where they managed to get pretty much everyone back on the grid. Uh, I think Sergio Garcia's gas gas was pretty well beat up, but everyone was back on the grid for the restart. And thankfully, the restart went fine and it was pretty sunny. It actually cleared up really quick. Yeah, and it looked really nice. Le-, Le Mans was one of those tracks where it dries really quick, so it wasn't really a fair for the restart. We had about a 15-minute delay, I think, in between the red flag and the start of... The second race, Moto 2 was delayed by about 10 minutes, but overall, Moto 3 went smoothly, and it was a pretty good race. Again, more weaving, but other than that, it wasn't one of those classic Moto 3 races. There was a, it was just, Le Mans is a bit of a weird track. You, I always feel like everyone is on the limit with that track because of the elevation and the camber and stuff, and like Le Chapelle, it's just, anytime they go through there, you're just fearing the talking of the front because it goes down into a dip and just as they touch the throttle, they're coming back uphill and it's just a kind of a tipping point and it happens so much. Overall though, we had into the final few laps, we had Messia, Sasaki, Leopard, both Leopards, including Suzuki, I know, I can't believe it. And um, we had the, we had Garcia who made a mistake with a couple laps to go and actually made a bit of a gap between the front group of Guevara, the two Leopards, Sasaki and Messia. And what did you make of the last couple of laps and poor poor Sasaki's last corner? <laughs> it was a it was a good last couple of laps. I mean, like you say, it wasn't a classic race or anything like that, but any race that comes down to the penultimate turn, pretty decent race as far as I'm concerned, you know, even if 
the whole rest of the race before that was a bit boring. At least the last lap was uh, good. But obviously, in this case, the race wasn't boring. I'm just saying, you know, if, if it comes out of the last corner, it could be the most boring race to that point. And it'd still be good. But yeah, overall, pretty decent. Some good battling. Fairly clean, to be fair. Like you said, a little bit of weaving. No guesses to who that was. Obviously, Mr. Mm -hmm. Dennis on tune once again. They, they always, apparently, the other riders say it seems like he has no peripheral vision, and it did seem like that was the case once again. He was uh, weaving sort of randomly. Fortunately, no incident, but that still doesn't make it okay. You know, you've got to be you know, proactive, not reactive, as they always say to these things. But yeah, the race in itself, pretty good, pretty clean. Suzaki just missing out there. It was a it was a really good move for him to take the lead through sort of the the S blue like uh, just the way he went up the inside. It's a classic move. It's a really nice, neat move. He did it perfectly. Sort of carried the speed through the first part, stuck at the inside of Messier in the second part, hit the apex perfectly, carried the speed so Messier didn't even get a run on him or anything like that. But then he didn't go defensive at all into the last corner into the penultimate turn, which sometimes people do make mistake of going too defensive. But he didn't even cover the inside at all, so of course it's Moto3, so Messiah went straight up the inside. To be fair to Messiah, he got it stopped, it was a very nice move, so he got straight through. So really unfortunate, Suzaki, once again, coming so, so close to winning a race, but just, just not quite enough. But my takeaway from that race really was that it looked like Fodger could have done an Indonesia and checked out. Early on in the race, it did look like he was doing that, but they sort of all dragged back up, and then at the end... Fodger's weakness is just shown again in actual battle. He just doesn't quite have it. Now, you could probably argue that that could be down to the Honda slightly as well, because KTM seems to be better on the brakes. But even still, he kind of just got attacked and sort of pushed back a little bit. And at that point, he was too far behind. Even into the penultimate turn, he got mugged by Guevara as well. So he didn't even end up on the podium. When it looked like a race, he could have gone and actually pulled away and uh, dominated. So, yeah, that's my biggest takeaway. Also, you know, we have been critical of Tatsuki Suzuki on this podcast before but you can't really refute him he did a pretty good race today and he was uh, he did a good job sort of defending his teammate as well so I just thought I'd mention that yeah pretty he was actually pretty special into first chicane he was taking this weird wide line and managed to actually get the move done into the second part of the chicane and he was doing it consistently and it was pretty interesting to see I believe maybe he might be at risk of losing his job because he seemed very aggressive, very racy today, way more than he usually is. And uh, I was glad for him to come home. Unfortunately, he ended up at the back of the group in P5. But um, he showed some good pace today. But it just Dennis Foggia is starting to stutter a bit. I believe maybe the pressure of having the number one man for the title kind of plastered all over his campaign is getting to him a slight bit because... All weekend, on his own, fastest man, no slipstream needed, massive corner speed, and he got to start. He managed to get to the front many times, but he couldn't do it. And like like you said, Reese, just many times in the battle, he just is a bit inferior to the likes of Messiah and Sasaki and stuff. So, something to work for in the future. We're going to Magello now, a track that surely he'll be quick at with that massive straight, uh, very flowing track, very Honda track, you would say, in the Model 3 class. So... Again, you could see the Leopard bikes. Maybe Mino might make a step there. Mino's not too bad. Crashed in the red flagged race and got back and finished average enough, I believe. But Mugello, Dennis Foggia has to... Yeah, well, he, really, he has to win it. He needs to kind of stunt everyone else's progress because uh, the gas gases are too consistent. Sasaki is ridiculously quick. He's had a few kind of unfortunate errors. But if he could put a run of five, six race together, he's constantly on the podium. He's definitely a championship man. 
So there's many people in this championship, and of course we have to mention Messiah. So as much as everyone thought it was this was Fodgia's that he'd walk away with it having the pace of last year. But maybe he's just not clicking this year. And at the moment, my favourite is Messiah. He's looked so good. And like he he was so happy with this one after having not a not a great qualifying. He said he didn't reckon he had the pace and then to win it. Yeah, good right from him. He looks like he's got back to his best, which is good after a couple of bad years. But we're going to move on now to Moto2. And first off, we're going to have to say the IO team looked to be back. And we're going to start with Pedro Costa. Now, Pedro put it on pole Saturday. I was going well in the race until the corner I mentioned before, La Chapelle. He happened to do exactly what he said, just roll off. But I reckon something has clicked because in Jerez he wasn't there. Portugal he was slow, or not slow, but he, he wasn't as quick compared to the preseason test. But first pole position looked like he had something. What did you make of Acosta's route to pole and almost a race win? It was really good to see, to be honest, because he'd looked obviously so good through testing. It was fantastic. Last year, Moto3, everyone sort of had him pinned on to do a Fernandez, but even more, and actually win the championship, which I think was probably a bit too much pressure to be put on him, and I think he's kind of cracked under that to some degree. But at the same time, both him and Fernandez have struggled a little bit. IO, the IO team as a whole hasn't looked as good as it did last year. I mean, it was unbelievable last year. It was the best team by far last year. Every race, Gardner, Fernandez, they could put a second, second and a half into the whole field on the first lap, and that was it. No one could see them again, because Moto2, uh, those races are very much like 800-era MotoGP races, where the tyres are just so good, they last so long, that once you have the gaps, you just can't make up the times anymore. You, you know, you don't have a massive advantage over everyone. Everyone just has the same lap times over and over again. So once those gaps form on the opening laps, they tend to stay there. So it is a little bit of a trait in Moto2. And last year, the, the IO boys made massive effect of that. And this year so far, they've been struggling a lot. Obviously, Fernandez and Acosta, they've both been crashing. Augusto has been kind of there, like in the top 10, but only just, really. I haven't really seen him all season, to be honest. You've seen him top a few sessions here and there, but he's not really done a lot except uh, Qatar. Obviously, Qatar probably was his best race up until this point. But it seems like after this test in Catalonia, something's clicked for both of them. 1-2, uh, obviously for most of that race, Acosta on pole position. Looked like Acosta was going to bring home his win. I was really rooting for Acosta because obviously he's got so much pressure on his back. And if he got a good result, I feel like he'd be able to make that step. But unfortunately, he crashed at La Chapelle. But his teammate, you know, fair play, Augusto Fernandez, First win since 2019. He's going to be pretty happy with that. Flawless ride. Miles up the road. He was about seven seconds in front of the uh, the podium scrap. So, yeah, it seems like the IO team are back. But what a job from Augusto Fernandez. And aside from the crash, good weekend for Acosta as well. Yeah, overall, he looks like he had a, he had a tough time at Mark VDS, yes, um, Fernandez, over a couple of years he had there. He was just... It looked like he maybe got that right a bit too early, which was a bit stupid to say when he was in a... It sounds, sounds stupid to say, I should say, because he was in a good team when he won his races back in 2019. He won all his races in a quick succession. Everyone thought, oh, this guy's going to go go on to do some good things. And then he kind of just went quiet. And then the following season, just went off the boil and then got to move to the Mark VDS. And it just it, it kind of was all a bit clunky. And it looks like the moves, again... Moving to IO, the IO team is just seems to get the best out of their riders. It's whatever they do in there, if it's Aki or, or or whatever the rest of the team do, they just seem to manage to get the most out of the rider. If you look at Remy Gardner, fast motor two rider on his day, prone to a crash, would go missing for parts of the season, and he made him a world champion. So 
I don't know how he does it, but whatever he's doing, he just makes world champions. So you could maybe argue the case that if he could keep this going, maybe he could fight for the title late in the season if he could really keep it up. But I still think one race win isn't enough to say that he's fully back to his best. I'd like to, I, I look forward to seeing him now in like Catalonia and stuff like that. See where under the Spanish sun at home will he be able to perform at such a high level when all the other riders will be absolutely gunning for it. But moving away now from the IR, we're going to have to cover. Fortunately, we had no Sam Lowe. It was a bit of a nightmare weekend, actually, for the other, uh, the two Mark VS boys. Tony Aberlino crashed out of the race uh, pretty early on, and Sam Lowe didn't even make it to the grid. Had a massive high side in Q2, coming out of Garage Vier, uh, very similar to Carl Crutchlow's in 2019, I believe it was. Got flung to the moon, came down hard on his leg. A small bit of concussion, bit of dizziness, lots of pain, rode in the warm up. But didn't make it. Um, hopefully he should be fine for Magello. It's just kind of precautionary. But unfortunately he didn't make it to the grid. But Vietti. Now Vietti I've mentioned many times in this podcast. That I was waiting for them to get back to Europe. To see was he another Balazari or could he do it. I had my fears throughout this race. When he was down in P19 after running off the track. That he was turning out to be exactly that. That he had a great start to the the odd races you could say and then when you get to the the real championship he started to struggle but what did you make of his comeback race from 19th and in the gravel at one point back to a very solid p8 yeah it was a pretty good comeback bit of a strange weekend for him i have also had the same sort of fears as you to some extent like thinking the same thing and i think i've mentioned it uh, in the previous podcast that ever since we got back to europe he's not been there particularly if you ask me obviously portimao it was nowhere, got very lucky, really. It, I mean, he was running around nowhere. All the right, you know, 10 riders crashed in front of him and he finished second. So, you know, that was good for him. Obviously, he brought home good points there, but he didn't have the pace. Hareth, Hareth wasn't too bad. Sixth place on the grid, I think, to sixth in the race. That's that's he ride, you know, jam, uh, damage limitation. Some weekends you don't have the pace, fair enough to come sixth. But this weekend, he was really, really off the pace, it seemed. Didn't even get through Q1. It was super close. I think he was like a few thousandths away from getting through. But as a championship leader, you shouldn't be in Q1 in the first place, really. So, yeah, it wasn't a great weekend for him. The race, again, like it looked like it was going okay-ish. He'd made some progress. Then he ran through the gravel, dropped down to like 19th, like you say. That looked like it was going to be a horror show. But to be fair, he had a very good comeback from there, obviously helped by quite a few crashes. There were lots and lots of crashes and mistakes of people running wide in that race. I think Le Mans is one of those circuits. It's so difficult to get right, so easy to go hot into the corners. You've got Garage there, you've got the, the Blue S's, you've got the, the other chicane. You've got a fair few chicanes that are very easy to go hot into. You know, The first corner, we've seen a few mistakes through there all weekend, having to go through the gravel. So it's one of those tracks where... It's so, so difficult. If you mess up one corner, it ruins your next sort of sequence. You go, you know, you break a meter too late, you go 10 meters wide, you know, it's one of those circuits. So there's lots of mistakes, lots of crashes, which definitely helped him out. But as well, you know, nine people did not crash in front of him. So he had to make progress. He caught back up, got into the top 10. So a decent damage limitation race there for Vietti. But when your title rivals are a lot further up, I mean, to be fair, his closest one, Agora. He wasn't too many positions behind, so he didn't lose too many points to him, but the likes of Canet and sort of, I mean, technically, I guess, Augusto Fernandez is still classed as that, so he lost a lot of points to those riders, so decent race, but he can't keep let this, he can't let this keep happening. Yeah, I agree. We go to Magello now, next home race for him, home track for the team. 
uh, it has to really put it for me podium has to be yeah. uh, the, the goal from top five again is okay it's a decent result but you don't win championships coming home P5 every week um, so that was pretty much it uh, Moto2 was a lot of crashes a lot of mistakes so we have to cover that uh, of course Jake Dixon crashed out rejoined Tony Arbolino crashed Oh Jesus! Just so many crashed. people. Al the exactly. Lopez. Lopez, yeah. So actually, there was just so many. Worth noting, Lopez. Uh, yeah, we actually haven't got actually. any notes about him here, but Bravado uh, Fanati got sacked. That's something we haven't mentioned at all. Actually, we completely forgot to mention that. So Fanati got sacked after the last race for nothing he's done behind the scenes, which is what you you probably expected to be honest. He just got fired for not improving. Apparently, his lap times were still the same as in testing at Jerez, so they sacked him. So very very harsh, but that that is the speed up team. A lot of the time they are they do tend to be quite harsh on their riders. Brought in Lopez. Lopez was doing fantastically. He, he qualified second row, was running really well. And to be fair, yes, he crashed, but it was a sort of racing contact with Arenas. He, he, again, I think that is maybe the kind of not looking when you cut back to the racing line thing. But I don't think quite as clear cut as we've seen in previous races. So. Yeah, good weekend for Lopez there. Sorry, I'll let you get back to what you're saying, but I just yeah. thought we'd uh, mention Lopez. Just with Lopez crashes, that corner really, you can kind of take it two different ways, and it's they just come back to the same bar track. It was There wasn't even much contact. It was a kind of small contact, a bit of a wobble, and they both kind of slid off. It was, it was unfortunate because Lopez, on his first weekend back, was, uh, was doing pretty well, but that was part of what I was saying. There was plenty of crashes and uh, I just said we'd cover that before we move forward onto the MotoGP category, which there was also a good few crashes, but we'll get to that later in the podcast. So, Saturday, Peko, one of the best laps. I think the lap record of the track was broken four times this weekend, by up to nearly eight tenths at one point. It just, every session, another two tenths was taken off it. Uh, Peko now holds it into the 30s. It was absolutely ridiculous times they were doing around that track compared to what they did a couple of years ago. But, unfortunately for Quattro in qualifying, wasn't able to get the front row. Same with Zarco. Was there a race doomed from Saturday? Pretty much. I mean, for Quattro especially. I mean, Le Mans is one of those circuits where it's so difficult to pass. So even when you're on a Ducati, if you're starting further back, it's pretty difficult. But basically, if you're on a Yamaha and you're not on pole position, you're not going to win, really. Uh, Portimao may be the exception, but that's because the straight, the main straight on Portimao has such a high-speed corner coming onto it. It actually nullifies Yamaha's uh, lack of top end. So if you have a corner, if you have a corner like that, you can actually make a pass on a Yamaha. But basically, any other track in the world, uh, except maybe Phillip Island, I guess, has a similar kind of uh, last corner. The Yamaha just cannot make a pass at all. So if you're not, if you're not basically in first place or second place at the end of the first lap, you're not going to win the race, and that was shown again. Zarco didn't have a great start. We'll probably talk about the race start a bit more in a minute. Um, and yeah, that, that kind of didn't help him as well, starting a bit further down. But qualifying does tend to set the, these races. But yeah, Peko's lap. You're on about Peko. How he didn't crash on that lap. I mean, going through... Well, I don't even know which turn number it is. But it's after, 11. Yeah, the, how he didn't crash there. Unbelievable. Miller was saying, following him, he saw all the black lines coming out of his front tyre. And what a lap. Peko... Really, like, I mean, he's a fantastic rider, but his qualifying laps are something else. We thought Quattararo was king of qualifying, and to be fair, if he had a better bike, he probably still would be, but oh, Banyaya's qualifying is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, we move on now to the race. Thankfully, there was 
some reports we might have a wet race. We might have a similar race that we had in uh, Portmo where there was rain, start, finish, kind of all over the place. But thankfully, it did clear up as the Sunday went on. The start for a few riders were good. Some riders went backwards. Fabio was one. There is footage of his onboard, and he just gets swallowed up. And he then goes for a very risky move around the outside for someone who's defending a world title. But... What did you make of the aggressive start and the mad moves on the opening three laps? Wings flying off, riders in the gravel, everything was going on. Yeah, it was uh, It was like a Moto3 style start. I was like, what is this start? What is going on? Because it just kept like upping the intensity. Like you say, Quattararo got a bad start. Well, no, actually, he didn't really get a bad start himself. He's on Yamaha, so he got yeah. a bad start. He got black. Like, his initial launch was fine. He was running with them, and we see that quite often. But as they sort of went through the first corner, it's one of those runs that's very long to the first braking zone. So on the Yamaha, you doomed. So he got blasted past by everybody. And then he had to sort of go around the outside. Like I was saying before, if you're on a Yamaha and you're not in the top three by the end of the first lap, you race his run. And to make passes, sometimes on the first lap, if you get your elbows out, you can make a pass on a Yamaha. But that's, that's it. So if you risk it all on the first lap, you can maybe recover those positions you've lost. But if you don't get them on the first lap, you're not going to get them at all. So he had to go for that risky move, but he wasn't the only one going for aggressive moves. There was uh, Zarko going for some aggressive moves, Nakagami as well. Obviously, uh, Vinyales, not Vinales, where's Vinales come from? Quattararo got past uh, Nakagami in the, uh, the the S's. And then Nakagami absolutely dived it up the inside of the penultimate turn. He was never going to make it. I, it was a bit of a silly move. Very desperate move to to just sort of retaliate. Just ran him and Quattararo both off the track. Marquez said, don't mind if I do. Straight past the pair of them. And then they almost, all three of them almost collided as they rejoined the circuit. So that was one of the aggressive moves. And then uh, Quattararo was then going past Nakagami. And Zarko decided to try and pass both at the same time. Which was interesting. I've not seen a replay of that move actually. But there was definitely some sort of contact. Nakagami ended up having to straight on the chicane. It was a, yeah, it was a very aggressive move from Zarko. It kind of reminds me a little bit of uh, Austria almost, where there, and there was that huge crash, sort of how he sort of tried to slice past someone, like, really close. So it is a bit of a Zarko trait to go for a very aggressive move. And, yeah, nothing really happened, I suppose. It was kind of on, but not really. It was a little bit... There was a few silly moves, I thought. Brad Binder as well. Uh, Dan to La Chapelle on the first lap. I can't remember who was going on the inside of now. Um, Zarko. Oh yeah, it was Zarko, wasn't it? Yeah. There was like half a gap, but it was never going to open up more because you keep turning into that corner. So he just stuck his nose at the inside, just rammed Zarko basically and lost his wing. So yeah, the, the, the start was a little bit weird. Some very silly moves from riders that should know better. Nakagami, I kind of get it because, of course, he's—I mean—he's—he's he's fighting for his job, although he's already lost it, really, if we're being honest. So, of course, he's going to be a bit desperate. But for Zark, and I guess for Zarko, he didn't want to have to, you know, get stuck behind Quattararo, but then he could have just blasted him on the next straight anyway. But that was a bit of an aggressive pass. So, yeah, I mean, I'm not sitting here moaning about aggressive passes. I love some aggressive racing, but some of them were a little bit silly. Because uh, they were just never going to work. I mean, we saw that they didn't work, so or, or they forced other people off the circuit, so it's not really a fair pass. And then that that was all the passes. But then starting, was it like lap three or something like that? I'm not exactly sure what lap it was. All of a sudden, we cut to sort of Rins just sort of like pinging off his bike. And as it turns out, he's done the, the rodeo through through turn one. He sort of lost the bike or whatever, ran in too high to the pickup. He's gone the rodeo over the top of two that we've seen a few riders do this weekend over the massive gravel and unfortunately, just as he come back on the track, he got like a massive sort of 
a bit of airtime, just crashed. It could have been really nasty, to be honest, because obviously he was out of control. There's nothing he could do. And I think in a race situation, that's really bad because he was quite far behind. And the Ducatis were sort of just getting to the corner as he crashed. So if he was a little bit further behind, he definitely could have T-boned someone, which wouldn't really have been his fault, but it would have been a pretty horrendous accident. Yeah, it was... Well, he, should, he should have not been allowed to rejoin, which is the scary part. Now, I don't know if he pulled into the pits. Or not. I don't remember where he actually went. Did he finish the race or not? But he got back up and he absolutely walloped his head so hard. It was like Neil Hudson said it when he saw it live because we could have cut to <laughs> the shoulder calm of a late Asparagro and this is just, just dot in the gravel doing about 120 miles an hour. And then we cut to the camera at the chicane and we just see him basically have a massive accident and really, really badly hit his head. He didn't look concussed or dazed like Marcus did in his Mandalika crash. Got back up, remounted and took off. But um, after such a bad head collision like that, they should not have let him back on the bike at all, in my opinion. Uh, but again, like it happened to Zarco, it's happened to people, it happened to Casey's owner in the past. Usually Lorenzo they kind of... As well. Yeah, Lorenzo, a couple of people kind of get away with it. But this time... It looks like he went in at a different angle because it looks like the gravel as it goes more left, more towards the barrier, it gets higher and he got massive airtime, went sideways and there was no saving it. Um, scary crash, like you said, what could have been, that could have been another horror accident and there could have been many, many more people injured. Um, there's no word yet on his condition. He did, obviously, like I said, rejoin himself, but I reckon he will be seriously concussed after that. If you have any... Anytime, look it up on YouTube, it'll definitely be out there. He took a massive hit to his head. But after that then, I just want to go back actually to the aggressive start. Uh, it was like all the moves on the first lap were like a last lap move. They were just like, we'll just try it like for the sake of it, just to see can I get past. Which was very weird, just come back to the uh, all the other moves you were talking about with wings flying off left, right and centre. But moving forward, now we're going to come to the home rider Fabio Quattararo. Like we mentioned previous in the podcast... His race was run by Saturday. He gave it his everything, but until Rins crashed out, then we had Mayer crash out. He wasn't overtaking people, um, and he was just stuck behind the Aprilia. He couldn't really get close enough to even make a pass. So it's it's just Yamaha. The other Yamahas were the last three in the pack. They were just 20 seconds off. Nowhere. Frankie Marmadelli ran off the track in the sighting lap in Museum. Ran it all the way up to the barrier. Don't know what happened there, but again, it's just that Yamaha is not working at all, and Fabio is doing, doing the God's work with it. Like the fact, at one point, Alessio Spagaro got it wrong into Gargiver, went to touch deep, and then into oh, it's a French chicane. I can't say it. I'll butcher the name. There we go. That's her. Into there, he was pretty much alongside him. He still could not break him. So. The Yamahas are just so in trouble. If they don't get pole or have a really short run to turn one or get a bit of luck in turn one, like in Portimao for Quattara where he was behind the Suzuki, they're, they're just in trouble. They have to wait for someone to fall off and run to them, which is what happened for three riders, thankfully for Fabio, from to come home P4. That could have been P7, like if everyone stayed on the front, which would be horrific in his home race and just terrible for his championship. So what did you make of Fabio's performance his home race? Everything that we've talked about just kind of comes together for this one point here with Fabio. We've got the tyre issue that we are on about before. Yamaha and the, their qualifying sort of setting their race. Fabio, once again, just you know, a step above everybody else. Like you say, he was battling for the podium. 
the other Yamahas were last, second to last, and last, uh, last second to last, third to last. So they were the last three riders in the in the pack. Well, they probably weren't even in the pack. Let's be honest; they're probably off the back of the pack. But even still, they were all last. Quattro right at the front. We really are in a Honda situation now, where one rider can ride the bike, the others can't. Now, I think to be honest, they probably have. If we're being serious, they probably do have the three slowest riders in MotoGP currently on the on that on those bikes. That doesn't help, but at the same time, you know, Morbidelli's no more, Dovi's no more. Right, Darren Bender's a rookie straight from Moto Three, so fair enough. But you know, those are those are quality riders in their day. I mean, even on a Yamaha, uh, Morbidelli was quality. So it's really, it's just, I, I, yeah, it's just terrible for them. Clearly, whatever they've done to the bike sort of the last two years works for Fabio, but not really for anybody else. I mean, we saw even last year there was at least at least some weekends Maverick Vinales could finish second place or could win the race on that same bike. But it seems like whatever the changes they sort of made over the course of that season into this season, they suit Fabio perfectly, which, yeah, makes sense. You go for the riders actually performing, but nobody else can ride it. So, yeah, Yamaha in major trouble. Quattararo, really good performance once again. He couldn't quite get past LA. He gave it a good go. I think maybe, you know, maybe if he had one more lap. But the problem is with the Yamaha, it's not even the whole issue of, oh, the, the V4s get in their way now. It's the, oh, I'm behind a V4. My tyre's going to blow up if I don't slow down. <laughs> it's just the, the pressure issue makes it even worse for them. So, yeah, it's just great performance for uh, Quattararo. Yamaha, massively in trouble. But I think we knew that already. Yeah, and just touching on Frankie for a second, obviously last year he crashed in this rain in the wet and really hurt his knee that he had already pretty much injured. Surgery was off for a while, came back, couldn't bend his knee. My question mark is how much of his knee is still affecting him or how much of the bike has changed that he can't ride it? Because back in 2020, he was slower at the start of the season than Fabio then went on to finish second in the world to the final champion which was Mir so you don't just lose that alright last year of course like I mentioned injury getting back to it bike had changed got changed teams this that and the other everything happened but so far this year there's not been any inkling that he has the pace to get to the Q2 never mind fight for the win with Fabio or even battle with Fabio's pace and, like, again, I was coming into the season thinking, fully fit, Frankie Marbidelli will give Fabio Quattraro a serious run for his money and beat him in places that we won't expect. And he's been P18, 19, 20, every single session, every weekend since the start of the season. And there's something wrong there. Now, we're never really going to... He's never going to come out and say, well, you have built a stop-and-go machine for Quattraro and I don't ride like that. Or they've built something like this, like that. Not, he's never going to come out and quit. He hasn't said much in public. Um, Lynn Jarvis, after Heret, kind of said a few shots, shot a few things in public about him, saying that we expected more. And then he kind of fired back with a few, well, my qualifying room my weekend. I had good pace, but then I got stuck behind him and the tyre pressure went up and my pace went. So the same reason Fabio can't go from 6th to 4th is the same reason by the sounds with that uh, Frankie can't go 16th to 14th if that makes sense he can't make up any position so he does apparently have better race pace than we're seeing but the very sensitive Yamaha is 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 a big issue at the moment but we're going to move on now we had a bad weekend for Fabio overall in his home race to a worse one 
for Peko Bagnaia. We already mentioned his unbelievable pole lap on Saturday. But what do you make of that crash? That was just a whole the half a lap, the half a lap of madness from Peko. It's very similar to uh, Rossi 2017, actually. Yeah. And I, I've only just made that sort of thing in my head. Uh, if he'd crashed like two quarters before he did, it would be identical virtually. But yeah, it was uh, one of those things. Uh, Bagnaia basically leading from the off, overtook Miller very early on, and then sort of Bastianini overtook Miller a bit later, reeled him in. Those who bolted away, they, they just looked impeccable, both of them. They were riding so smooth. I, I love both their riding styles, I've got to say. They both look so good, and Bastianini on that bike looks amazing. But we're talking about Bagnaia right now, of course. But yeah, Bastianini caught up to Bagnaia, sort of made a pass. Bagnaia fought straight back, because he knew that Bastianini was quicker if he let him you know, get his rhythm for a half a lap or so, pull away. So he got straight back in front and then he clearly tried to sort of pick up the pace a little bit, push that last little percent into the brakes. Obviously into garage there, uh, on the commentary they said that he hit the bump, but he'd braked like 50 metres too late as well. Like, he was yeah. so, like you saw it visibly from Bastianini's onboard. I mean, you, you watch from the weekend, you kind of, and obviously as a TV viewer, you don't pick it up completely, but you generally get an idea of where they break for the corners. And you saw how late Bagnaia went to that corner. I thought, like, when he went that wide, I thought, he's going to the gravel. And he almost did, to be fair. He went into the long lap. So it was uh, probably a combination of the bump, but he breaks so late. Really, a bit of a rookie mistake. But then it's thought, all right, you're a second behind Bastianini. Clearly, you're not going to catch that up now. Just, you know, try and compose yourself. But obviously, he was still trying to push. He probably didn't know how close Miller was behind him. Although, let's be honest, Miller was never going to overtake him anyway. <laughs> so, yeah. quite why... He carried on, but obviously maybe in his head he thought he could just maybe reel onto the back of Bastianini, get back in front, or perhaps he's just a bit flustered, whatever, but then he tipped off at the penultimate turn, a crash we've seen so many times. Uh, we saw it in Moto2, Jake Dixon did the exact same crash virtually. And once again, it's just, it's a little bit of a trend for Pecco. Um, I mean, some of the races he's done fantastically under high pressure. You think back to uh, Jerez, Obviously, with Quattrara right behind him the whole race. Aragon, where he was uh, you know, able to sort of pass Marquez every time Marquez went back underneath him. Uh, the, the first Masano race, when Fabio was closing him in. But then there's also been a few times where the pressure's kind of got to him. You know, like Masano the second time last year. That could be blamed on the tyre a little bit, I guess. But he was trying to break Marquez, fell off. Masano the year before, he had a massive lead, crashed out the lead. Vinales ended up winning. Again, here he's crashed, and he's crashed a couple of the times. But he didn't, uh, Mugello last year, he made a mistake on the opening lap. Granted, his head, he probably wasn't in the right space with his head based on the obviously tragic incidents of that weekend. But again, it was another time where he'd been distracted by an external factor and crashed. So it's a little bit of a thing that Banyai does tend to do. He can deal with the pressure quite a lot, but it seems to be he could deal with the pressure when he's already faster than the other guy anyway. When he's not, he seems to uh, seems to push over that limit and end up crashing. Yeah, and I was when he crashed in the race, I was kind of like, I actually thought it was Miller. I Miller it was Miller went to soft too. Yeah, <laughs> when Miller went to soft front, I was like, oh no, that's not going to work. And I was like, that's that's just a recipe for disaster. And because we actually see it from. I think it was Alaysia's on board. We just kind of he's going into the front of the car. And you see a red Ducati because we were on board with the 
um, a prelude come through the penultimate corner. You hear the the crash noise in the through the audio, and then we just see a red Ducati somewhere in it. And I convinced it was Miller. Then when I saw his pick, I was like, Jesus! And I thought to myself, MotoGP has two aliens right now. Simple as that. Everyone like Neil Hudson made this comment at start of the year. I think that everyone in GP is an alien, and I understand that because it's so close. Everyone has similar equipment. Nobody is not going to win a race. Everyone has the potential, but you have two aliens really. You really have two aliens. Mark Marcus, who at the moment is on a bike that doesn't work and he is still quite unfit. Uh, he did a practice start this morning in the warm-up and nearly jarred his shoulder. He had to completely roll off, hand on the shoulder, moving around. He's still not right with that arm. That arm is still a massive holdback. And then we have Fabio Quattararo getting the maximum out of a bike that shouldn't be there. He was down in P7. Okay, people crashed, but he managed to get up as far as P4. Bastianini again crashed in Portimao, well, goes missing in the rain, the Yamaha doesn't work in the rain, Fabio doesn't work in the rain, but apparently he does now because he, every time it rains, he manages to pull a result out. He is the only other alien, in my opinion, on the grid. You could say maybe Mir, but Mir crashed out today and probably nailed on podium after what happened in the race. There's too many mistakes from too many other riders, whereas Pecco, or sorry, Fabio doesn't crash. Marquez, we all know his amazing talent and he's already cemented his his status as an alien and um fabio for me is just the other alien on the grid and i think he has actually a worse bike than everyone else believes and he's just outperforming that much so that he makes it look like he's not that far off but he's way off with that yamaha but um just moving on i just wanted to kind of say that before i move on to our winner fantastic bastianini what a performance his crew chief before the race was seen out the back of the garage having a cigarette saying i don't know what's going to happen this race he has no pace we're in trouble fast forward 45 minutes later he is in park Verme being interviewed by simon craver saying well done brilliant race you absolutely destroyed everyone how does that happen bastianini that's how it happens he is world class not an alien yet because he still has a crash in him and he still isn't there in every condition Maybe you could put it onto the bike. Maybe if we got him on Peko's bike, maybe you could see that come up. But what did you make of Bastianini's brilliant French Grand Prix? It just kind of came as a surprise, honestly, because I hadn't really noticed him all weekend. I was thinking, like, he'd not been so good in Jerez. I thought, all right, we're here in Europe now. The dial in the GP22s, I mean, they were running 1 2, you know, the 1 2 on the grid. So it's like, yeah, the new bike's now better. Bastianini's going to start to fall back. All of a sudden, end of the first lap. How's he third place? Where did he come from? But yeah, he was up to third, and then just the usual Bastianini masterclass, really. He's so, so good, just be, being consistent. I think, honestly, MotoGP, the start matters so much. You can have, you can say, so-and-so's got amazing race pace, or this guy, you know, is looking really fast. But basically, if you get away in the top three, you'll probably do the top three pace, because everyone's so close. You can push that last little bit, and usually in the race, they've got to be, you know, they're on the limit. But they've got a, they're not like full pace qualifying. So even if you are a little bit off the ultimate pace, when you're all dialed back a little bit to race pace, it really closes them up. So if you start off well, Bastianini did right up there. He can look after his tyres, masterclass, just so, such a smooth rider. Like I was saying before, I love his style. It's so good. And I've got to say, I just, I never expected this from him at all in terms of his career. I remember watching him in Moto3 thinking, yeah, he's all right. Never really thought, I was like, oh, he's got promoted to Moto2, that's alright. And then that championship he had, he looked really good some weekends. He, you know, he was a bit hit or miss and it was a bit like, oh, it was a bit of a weird year, but fair play. He definitely deserved it because he was the best rider over that season. But 
it was a weird season. Obviously, we had loads. We had like quite a few people battling. I mean, really, I think Lowe's was actually the fastest guy that season, but he just, you know, ended up doing a Sam Lowe's. <laughs> and, uh, but Bastianini won that title fair and square by being consistent and fast, which is what you need both of, again. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's just, uh, I never expected this. And then he got those podiums last year, and I was like, oh, I'll tell you what, Bastianini has been a really good MotoGP rider. Winter Qatar, huh? Like, how did he do that? Austin... <laughs> wins again and then here he was sat in that position i thought as soon as i saw that he was sat third behind those two ducatis i was like well bastianini's gonna win this one because he's just so good at his tires he's so good at race management he's so good at stalking he's so good at not making mistakes you know he he got behind miller he sat there he seems to be like the only rider that could sit behind someone and not have an overheating tire but he sat there for a few laps you know made the pass on miller then sort of went straight after banyard because banyard had picked the pace up at that point pulled away from miller a little bit you know, sort of caught straight back to the back of him. They pulled away together. They probably dropped the pace by a good half a second a lap at least. They really, really picked up the pace. Just sat there. He looked comfortable behind Banyaya. You know, no twitches. I mean, to be fair, Banyaya also looked comfortable. But it was one of those things where Bastianini, I think he did have a little bit more pace in the locker. Obviously, he made that pass, got repassed. Banyaya made the mistake, gave him a second lead. Obviously, then Banyaya fell off, which gave him like two nearly three seconds worth of lead that was it then he brought it to the flag but he was still pushing on he's still extending the gap so yeah bastianini just so so good qualifying was his achilles heel last year uh, he seems to have relatively sorted that even if maybe he's not the best qualifier in the world he qualifies well enough that his good starts getting straight up into the lead pack and to be honest if you're on a bike that allows you to do that then that's a perfectly fine way to run a weekend you don't have to be on pole position because you get no points for putting it on pole like Banyaya will tell you, because he picked up zero today, whereas Bastianini picked up 25. So, yeah, just I'm just so impressed with him all the time. Like I said, I never expected that from his junior career. Yeah, I do agree a lot with his junior career that he wasn't he he wasn't Fabio Quattararo of Model Three, Jorge Martin, Mark Marquez. He wasn't one of those names where you're expecting it to happen. He got into it, and I thought, yeah, he could be a a, a Petrucci, um, maybe slowly work himself into maybe get a factory seat when the time arrives but not go in and start whipping people and basically put himself on the factory bike because he's the quickest also quick mention he did crash three times this weekend including in the warm-up so for he obviously was pushing on was struggling so for him to do that in the race that shows some brilliant racecraft and showed that he can just play with the balance very similar to marcus could do crash many times in the weekend gets to the race can just Turned the dial down to one less than his maximum and ride perfectly on the edge like that. He did very well. But um, overall, fantastic. Put himself back into the championship fight with that. Um, my current championship is four riders. Aleish, Fabio, Peko and Inea. I don't see anyone else in there. I don't see Marcus. Uh, I don't see Jack Miller. Hargley Martins crashed too much. Zarko's not really good enough. Um, and the Suzuki's have just ended their title. Yeah, just, they've just ended. Yeah, pulling out. No more development. Two, Two crashes. crashes yeah. End off. Game over. They might as well go home now. It's, it's um, yeah. The way they did it as well. We didn't touch it. We probably didn't cover it in enough detail at the start. It was leaked. Out to the press. Two weeks off. No announcement. And in Japan, they have this um, just some sort of holiday where it's like a. Like um, a peaceful, yeah, exactly that one where there's no media press coming out. So 
It was told to the team, that's how the journalists found out and that's how everything broke. But they didn't confirm or deny for two weeks and a lot of their sponsors found out that way, which is very bad. Uh, just very bad handling of the situation. Fair enough if you're going to pull out, but there's ways to do things and they did not do it the right way. Simple as that. Considering that in Portimao, Livio Supo had been on note saying that we're happy with our two riders. We are looking to re-sign them for 2023. That was a week before they pulled out. So a massive disconnect between the race team and the big wigs in the suits who pulled the plug. So just wanted to get that in there. But I think that is pretty much it. We have Magello now next up on the calendar. Ducati going to romp it. Yamaha going to corner speed their way to victory. Or are we going to see something different? Could we see an Aprilia at home win? Reese, what's your take on Magello's potential? I don't even know. It could, it could be anybody. <laughs> it's That's the thing about MotoGP. I think now we are starting to get to the point where, really, the guys fighting for the win are Quattararo, Bagnaia, Bastianini, like you say, those uh, and, uh, and Aleish as well. Those are the main guys that are actually up there week in, week out now. So it being so random, which i got to say, I like a little bit more because at least you can kind of follow sort of some sort of story through the season, whereas when it's just completely random, it's great to see. It's great, but it's also a bit like, well, you don't know who's where in the championship. Like, someone wins a race, and all of a sudden, they weren't even in the top four, you know, where it shows the uh, the graphics of the, the 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 current championship based on lap so-and-so. They weren't even in the top four. They gained, like, two positions, and they're, like, leading the championship all of a sudden. It's like, well, <laughs> which is great, but it is nicer when you can follow a bit of a story. I think it is going to be those four really... I can't see the Yamaha winning though. The Yamaha, I was surprised, won last year, and that was just a count of he was leading very early on. I think Zarco did actually pass him at one point, but he managed to get back in front of Zarco. Well, that's not going to happen this year. If he gets behind Zarco, he's definitely not going to repass him. Uh, but yeah, he managed to Quattro managed to get past Zarco, then just pull away. And if if he's leading at the end of the first lap by like a second or something, yeah, hundred percent he could win. But that's just not going to happen. So. Yeah, I reckon it'll probably be a Ducati, so either Bagnaia or a Bastianini, or Martin. Uh, I don't think Miller will win. Martin, if he's back on form, could fight for it, but he's been really struggling like this season. Since Argentina, really, he's not really been anywhere. Well, Austin wasn't too bad, I guess, but Argentina was the last standout race when he battled with Aleish. Aleish could also win the race. So, yeah, it's it's really between either the one of the Ducatis, so Bagnaia and Bastianini, and a lace, really, I think, for the actual win. So, oh, an Italian bike, an Italian V4 to win at Magello. You heard it here first. Yep. Take it to the bank. There you go. Put your bets on now. Right. Yeah. Um, for me, I would probably go Bastianini. Um, but also, GP22 at Magello, surely it's going to work. So then you'd say Pecco, I'm sure. I presume at this point, Pecco would be like, look, I'd probably owe this championship. I've already had so many crashes, I've had bad races, I've had this, that and the other happen, I'm just going to ride my own race and I would not be surprised if he just puts it on pole, clocks out, destroys him, hasn't seen any issues next weekend, but saying that Fabio is going to be rapid there, but I don't think he can overcome that length of that straight, because even if he puts it on pole, with the whole shot devices, the way they get up through the gears, he will be third, fourth, coming into turn one, and then you're already off the podium, and to be fair, in Mugello, Casanova Savelli, Arbiata, um, Carntayo, you can make overtakes. It is a track that 
you can stuff a move, and Valentino did it amazingly over the last 20 years, and a Yamaha can do it, but it's high risk in current MotoGP when we go back to the, the Michelin tyres. They're just so so bad. so hard to get in the right window <laughs> yeah well it's so bad <laughs> that's exactly that's what i should have said exactly <laughs> there's a rubbish tire that can't do anything they're rubbish get them out get pretty michelin uh, goodbye but yeah i'm gonna end we're gonna end it here because uh, i think we've covered it we just hit the hour mark we've wasted enough of your time but uh any last thoughts reese on le mans and anything else well apparently ducati are announcing their uh new rider Ooh, on there Magello. Yes, we yes, haven't yes. mentioned that yet so well Speculate who we're going to think it is. Like, which rider do you think they're going to sign? Hmm. It's down to two, right? It and is. It's either Bastianini or Miller now, isn't it? Uh, yeah, Martin surprisingly isn't going to be there because, again, his his form just hasn't been good enough. Good but, but has Bastianini done enough to take Miller's? You see, it, it actually Definitely. the issue for me. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, if it was on pace and it's just pure merit. Just, yeah, be not a question. Yeah, exactly. Pure merit. Grant Bastianini has it since probably Qatar <laughs> yeah, um, very much but um, the issue is that Jack is a brilliant team player he works really well with Peko him and Peko get on excellent they go through the data together they help each other on track you often see I think it was in Portimao when Jack was having a really good weekend he was helping out Peko as he was going out in Q1 he was showing him different things tell, telling them little things and if he has Bastianini alongside him Bastianini will fight him fire with fire. It'll be Rossi Lorenzo at Ducati. Like, it'll be... It'll just be war. Well, we need so, to see that. Ducati, Go on. Go on, we, Yeah, we do. <laughs> yeah, Ducati need to light the fire under themselves. But would they keep Jack Miller? He had a brilliant race today. Chose a soft front. Made... I don't think he made a mistake. I don't remember seeing a mistake from him. He rode brilliantly. He looked like at one point he was being caught by elation and picked up his pace. So, maybe... He's a brilliant two rider. He's a great Danny Pedrosa. He's a bit of a Petrucci. Uh, they absolutely love him as well. So I I really don't know. It's probably going to be Bastianini. I'd lean, if it was now, I'd lean 60 40 to Bastianini. Yeah. But if they signed Jack for another one year contract, I would not be one bit surprised. No. So you you want to be able to do that. Yeah, day. that's it. Like Peko. So. Peko is the number one. He is their baby. But we're going to end it there. I hope you have enjoyed today's podcast. If you have, drop a like down below if you are listening on YouTube. Give us a five-star rating on, on Spotify if you're tuning in on that podcast. But thank you all for tuning in today. We'll be back in a couple of weeks for Magello, one of the jewels of the calendar. But thanks again for watching. See you in the next one.